Bugle, audio newspaper for a visual world. Hello, Buglers, and welcome to issue 4008 of the Bugle, the week-by-week, weekly, seven-day instalment-by-seven-day instalment, live encyclopedia of the 21st century. I am Andy Zaltzman, Doctor of Truth. Sorry, Doctora of Truth. That, that is a key syllable I missed out there. And I'm live in London, the spiritual home of the slightly resentful glance. And I am joined this week back for his second crack at the controls of HMS Bugle to see if he can Titanic it into an iceberg. <laughs> it's Nish Kumar. Hello, Andy. Hello, Buglers. I'm back. Welcome, welcome back. Sorry, I should just point out I know Titanic was not an HMS. What, what, was, what was Titanic? What was Titanic's initials, Chris? You're our... Maritime shipping expert. BS. BS. Oh, that would be inappropriate. RMS. 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 Anyway, uh, that was a needless diversion. But um, <laughs> I mean, really, if I start picking up on minor factual inaccuracies, yeah, I was going to say, Andy, given the the previous um, however many episodes there have been. Right. If they were on Wikipedia, would have a giant asterisk <laughs> with the word citation needed in 78-point font. I'm not sure we want to open this particular Pandorica. Maybe we should... I think we should get that citation needed on the next range of Google merch. Um, anyway, so, Nish, last time you were on this, uh, this newscast... Um, yeah, I've held on to a job. <laughs> Absolutely. No one is more surprised about that than me. The rehire for Kuma... <laughs> The, uh, uh, you were just about to fly off to Mongolia. That's right, I was just about to leave for Mongolia. And how did Mongolia treat you? Andy, last time we spoke, I was a man who had not milked a horse. <laughs> and now, as we speak, I'm a man who has still never milked a horse. Oh, all right, okay. I failed to milk a horse. That's <laughs> did what you I'm trying to tell you. Did you attempt I to attempted milk a... to milk a horse, yeah. Right. I was in Mongolia making a travel programme, which uh, hopefully Bugles will be able to see, see uh, later on uh, into 2017. Uh, Mongolia is a uh, it is a really spectacular country. It's uh, it's really interesting and amazing. There's a lot of space going on out there. A lot of space. Um, I uh, met some incredible people. They were really friendly. And uh, when we arrived there on one of the first days, uh, we met a lady who said, the key thing you know need to know about Mongolians is they don't hate you as much as it looks like they hate you. <laughs> she said that the Mongolians traditionally have good hearts but angry faces. And that was exclusively my experience of Mongolia. You'd walk in and think, well, oh, I've really messed up here, and then actually be treated really warmly. It's absolutely lovely people. Um, and on one of, the, uh, one of the first days we went to stay with a family in a tent out kind of in what they call a steppe, which is kind of this kind of desert, really one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Uh, we were in, staying in with this family who were really sweet to us. When we arrived there, obviously, there's a huge language barrier. And so we were all just kind of sat there sort of in silence, kind of smiling at each other. And then uh, a small child walked in uh, who belonged to the family. She wasn't just roaming the Mongolian steppe. <laughs> and uh, she sort of took a look at the situation and uh, then did what I can only describe as an almighty fart. <laughs> the kind of fart that you do not associate with three-year-olds, the kind of fart you associate with 56-year-old alcoholic men. <laughs> it was absolutely astonishing. All of us started laughing and that broke the ice. Right. Nothing breaks the ice better than a farting child. <laughs> Never a truer word spoken on this podcast. That's what I learned from Mongolia, basically. Okay. So, I mean, how... Talk us through the failing to milk a horse. I mean, how, how spectacularly... I mean, did you end up with one presumably very angry horse? 
<laughs> I ended up with a string of very angry horses, Andy. <laughs> it's a, they, they milk horses and they uh, ferment the milk and make a sort of beer called agar, which, uh, I mean, we ate a lot of great stuff in Mongolia, but uh, drinking that was the closest I've ever felt to death. Like, it really was. <laughs> It was a, it's a, it's a unique bouquet, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so in order to do that, they obviously have to milk the horses. But uh, and this lady sh- uh, did it, and she did it just so easily, just uh, knelt down, milked the horse. But uh, I approached the horses, and those things looked at me like, "Please keep your hands away from my nether regions." So right. I have never, I've never seen such anger in an animal's. Did eyes. you definitely pick a, a lady horse? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, now we're getting close to the problem. Anyway, this is... Hindsight is twenty twenty, Andy. Uh, this is Bugle Issue 4008 for the week beginning Monday, the 12th of December, 2016. Can you believe, Nish, it is already 608 years since the foundation of the Order of the Dragon? I absolutely cannot. A monarchical chivalric order founded by King Sigismund of Hungary. <laughs> uh, are you a member? I am not. Right, but, so you're, uh... you're not concerned about fighting the enemies of Christianity? <laughs> You're, or, or you're not one of those trendy dragons rights campaigners, are you? <laughs> are you a commentator on one of my Guardian articles, Andy? <laughs> uh, and uh, on this day, uh, on, in 1901, uh, Marconi received the first transatlantic radio signal, uh, the letter S in Morse code. Uh, history does not report uh, the following three letters. <laughs> um, and uh, on December the 10th, uh, so, uh, I mean, uh, Saturday, that'll be this, uh, this year, in 1868, the first ever traffic lights were installed outside the Palace of Westminster in London. Um, and that's just, uh, just a mile from where we're recording uh, today. Now, of course, we at the Bugle are honoured and privileged to have exclusive access to the uh, British National Audio Archives, containing all the sound ever generated in this country since 1519, when, of course, uh, Henry VIII invented shouting. And um, we have the audio recording of the first ever use of a traffic light which took place, as I said, here in London 148 years ago this weekend, just uh, just a mile away from here. Gentlemen, the red signal means you must not go. The green signal means you may go. I will now turn the signal from red to green. <laughs> Move you f***ing asshole! You got a fucking accelerator pedal on that horse. Shift it, you c**t. <laughs> so, what the first ever use of a traffic light in London? Um, <laughs> <laughs> what did I say last time, Andy? Your accent work is undervalued. <laughs> that was like watching Eddie Murphy in Norbit. <laughs> um. On the 2nd of January, 1869, just three weeks later, that traffic light exploded. <laughs> um, so, uh, but interestingly, you know, uh, in, uh, I don't know if we've talked about this before, um, in athletics, the, uh, if you, a full start is if you go within 0.1 seconds of, of the gun going off. Because that is considered the fastest possible human reaction. And they measure that based on, the time between a traffic light turning green in London and someone honking a horn. <laughs> was the human brain <laughs> Also, it's 80 years uh, this weekend since uh, Edward VIII abdicated. And uh, this, was, uh, uh, this was an interesting quote from his own private secretary nine years before uh, the uh, abdication. Um, uh, well, he became king and abdicated in the same year, 1936. I can't help thinking 
that the best thing that could happen to him and to the country would be for him to break his neck. <laughs> that, is, that is not a ringing endorsement from someone employed by you. <laughs> that, uh, that historical event also inspired the film uh, that Madonna directed. I think there was a biopic of Wallace Simpson. Oh, right. And uh, arguably that movie was so bad it is a worse consequence of his abdication than the constitutional <laughs> crisis that followed. As always, a section of The Bugle is going uh, straight into the bin this week uh, as we continue our exclusive build-up to Christmas 2016 world-exclusive coverage. We have the uh, latest pre-Christmas uh, injury gossip and, uh, well, uh, it's not looking too good, actually, for Santa this year. Prance are uh, looking doubtful uh, for the big night after rupturing an Achilles in training. Um, I mean, there has been a lot of injuries in the reindeer squads this year. Dasher down with a touch of moose flu. Uh, he's touch and go. Vixen reportedly pregnant. And, uh, well, the boss man is, is furious, according to uh, reports. And no prizes for guessing who the father might be after Rudolph was relegated to the back of the lineup. And uh, Donna... Uh, after an administrative mix-up, currently having a large metal spit removed from his body and treatment for all over burns to his fur. <laughs> uh, also in the uh, Christmas in the Bin section, uh, Christmas apps. New apps to help you through Christmas this year, including Present and Correct, an app that enables you to share with your uh, partner, your romantic partners, the amount of money you've each spent on each other's Christmas presents <laughs> to make sure you can either match up, beat, or deliberately uh, undercut your your <laughs> loved ones. And uh, Manger Danger, uh, that's an app that analyses how securely large Christmas scenes in churches are made so that you know whether a manger may or may not collapse. <laughs> and you're right, I just didn't think of the term Manger Danger there. <laughs> <laughs> Top story this week, party time. Andy, it's December. Yep. we got Christmas. We got New Year's. You know what that means? It means party time, <laughs> and it's big partying across Europe uh, because uh, there's been some good news. Some good news coming out of European politics. Alexander Van der Bellen won the Austrian election, defeating Norbert Hofer of the far right Freedom Party. <laughs> party time, Andy! <laughs> it's party time. Yes, the far right party did win forty five percent of the vote, but it's still party time. <laughs> We need to hold on to this. Some people are saying that uh, this isn't necessarily good news. We shouldn't be celebrating that uh, Nazis have not won a major election. <laughs> but given the all-you-can-eat buffet of utter feces that has been 2016's <laughs> political news, it is a sweet relief to know that common sense has prevailed and a far-right party has not won an election in a major European country. Particularly Austria. Um, yeah. Just, I guess, come to that democratic conclusion... It's better late than never, I suppose. Listen, they're learning from their mistakes, Andy. <laughs> a Green Party politician, uh, Werner Kogler, uh, I don't know if I've pronounced that right, but let's go with that. And uh, Van der Bellen, uh, he does sound like a name that we've made up, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's his actual name. He was formerly in the Green Party, running as an independent. A Green Party politician uh, described the result as, quote, a small global turning of the tide in these uncertain, not to say hysterical and even stupid times. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's... I mean, is this a turning of the tide? Uh, I mean, it might be one of those turnings of the tide where the tide goes out a bit before <laughs> a massive tsunami comes in instead. But we'll, we'll take it. It has been 
It has been a wet year on the beach, Nish. <laughs> Party time. Yeah. It might not even be, it might just be someone throwing a bucket of water into the sea, but we'll ta- <laughs> we will take it. We've got to take what we can get. It, uh, it would have been an absolutely disastrous result uh, if he'd won. And um, there's sort of been some, some commiserations uh, across the kind of far right of Europe. Um, this is a slightly extraordinary claim uh, from one of his supporters uh, who said that if Hoffa had won, he would have proved he wasn't a Nazi if he had been elected. Now, that is a very <laughs> dangerous game to play, especially given that he is the leader of a party who was founded by a group of ex-Nazis. <laughs> but that is still a very dangerous claim. If somebody said to you, you go and stick your dick in that lion's mouth, <laughs> and that will prove that the lion will not bite your dick off, you'd probably think, who is running this zoo? <laughs> <laughs> and also, when you look at the track record of people who have you know, run as Nazis and then got into power, I mean, for example, <laughs> Adolf Hitler ran as a Nazi, and then, if anything, became much, much more of a Nazi. Absolutely. After winning the election. Much, much more. And he was pretty much 120% Nazi to start with. Yeah, he went full Nazi. Power really teased the Nazi out of him. Interestingly, uh, Hoffer um, has had a pop at Nigel Farage, who... um, Uh, enjoying himself after uh, interfering with British democracy and now appears to be trying to interfere with everyone else's uh, as well. Um, uh, he's been blamed by some in the Freedom Party for, uh, for, the, for the defeat uh, because he claimed on Fox News uh, that Hoffa would hold a referendum on Austria leaving the EU um, and uh, Hoffa described these comments as a crass misjudgment <laughs> Um, which I think Farage probably took as a compliment, um, adding that it does not fill me with joy when someone meddles from outside. <laughs> the ultimate insult to Farage. Especially because that's what he accused Barack Obama of doing uh, earlier in the year with the EU referendum. He said that uh, you know it didn't help that Obama came and in, interfered, and he's not learning his own lessons no. on Farage. Well, his whole political career is based on the idea that people come in and meddle from the outside, isn't it? <laughs> We've got to take the positives from the situation. And it does seem to be sort of one in the eye uh, for right-wing populism. But 2017, as bad as 2016 has been, could be limbering up to be a sequel in the vein of the Matrix sequels. <laughs> and it could be longer and even more painful. <laughs> but um, Because there are major elections happening uh, in France and Germany next year. And the sort of hope is that this is kind of one in the eye for the right-wing populists. And my the thing that I find most interesting about this is the way that these people brand themselves, like calling themselves the National Front. In Italy, they're called the Five Star Movement. Even the fact that they're called populists is a real victory of branding. Because <laughs> if you walk around calling yourself popular, there is a chance people will go, well, they must be pretty popular. It's like the ultimate confidence trick. And I'm still not sure why we've all gone along with that idea. When Prince changed his name to the artist formerly known as Prince, we just laughed at him and then kept calling him Prince. <laughs> like, it's very strange. I've got some possible suggestions for alternative names to stop calling them right-wing populists. Uh, my suggestions are dickheadism, Woodstock for shitbags, nutcase enablers, the dark side of the force, assholes, and Anne Hathaway. Because... <laughs> For whatever reason, I'm a fan of Anne Hathaway, but people seem to really hate Anne Hathaway. And well, I think if we start... Is this the one that married Shakespeare? Or... <laughs> <laughs> well, that is I mean, one they, for... Are they blaming Shakespeare's romantic comedies on 
the fact that he was... Uh, <laughs> I think they might be slightly confusing to Anne Hathaway. Okay. <laughs> well, in France, uh, Marine Le Pen, uh, who is the daughter of one of France's biggest ever shitheads, <laughs> is... Um, well, I mean, she, she could be... She could be president by this time next year. Very scary. Um, she's behind in the polls, but that is generally a pretty surefire sign that she's going to romp to f***ing victory. Um, this, this week, she caused some, uh, some controversy uh, with these comments. I've got nothing against foreigners, but I say to them, if you come to our country, don't expect that you'll be taken care of and that your children will be educated for free. Um, and then followed up by saying, it's the end of playtime. <laughs> Which is contradictory messages, isn't it? Saying that your children will not be allowed to go to school, but then also won't have playtime either. So if they're not going to school, playtime is all they've got left. She did try to... Um... <laughs> There's going to be playtime 24-7, which coincidentally is Nish's name on the comedy circuit. But anyway, um, <laughs> she tried to clarify... It's either that or NK47. <laughs> she tried to clarify matters by saying that she meant only illegal immigrants, uh, not all foreigners. So everyone assumes that what she really meant was all foreigners. <laughs> that is basically what she said. Um, oh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's worrying. She, she has, many articles said, worked very hard to detoxify the uh, Front National Party's extremist image. Um, but not entirely detoxify, because I, I guess if you're a right-wing leader, you need, what 2016 has shown is you need to have an effective level of electable toxicity. <laughs> you don't want to be completely detoxified. You want to be have enough toxicity to poison people to make them feel sick and angry, but still leave them just alive enough to vote. That is the absolute key. Electable toxicity is Andy's name on the UK. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem that fascism has had a rebrand. Because I thought we were all under the impression collectively that it was a bad thing. It is... Definitely a tainted brand. It's definitely a, it definitely is. I thought it was a tainted brand, but it seems like everybody's sort of cool with it now. Trump was openly endorsed by the KKK. Nigel Farage sort of seemingly co-opted fascist propaganda for Brexit. And what I'm worried about is where does this leave Indiana Jones? <laughs> because why are these questions never asked in the mainstream? <laughs> Classic MSM bias. Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> I, I, Indiana Jones, I always thought, was the story of a sort of plucky archaeologist and his buddy Sala, uh, who in the, were trying to keep the Holy Grail out of the hands of Nazis. And then it has a happy ending when the Grail doesn't get stolen by fascists. But now, in 2016, we have to redo that entire film because it's now, uh, it's now a horrible story about a group of outright activists who were trying to get hold of the Holy Grail for reasons of economic anxiety <laughs> or to keep it out of the hands of Islamic fundamentalists. And then some liberal elite academic <laughs> comes along from the establishment with his Muslim friend and tries to interfere because of political correctness. <laughs> and actually, the ending is very sad because the outright activists drink from the wrong cup. And they could have consulted the academic, uh, given that he was actually an expert in biblical history. But I think we have all had enough of experts. Testify. <laughs> so, when was that? How old is Indiana Jones now? They're from the eighties. So I mean, he's well, he must be what seventy now. For yeah, if he's a day. Close films out there. So he's probably swung right. Anyway, <laughs> <isn't he? laughs> That's the the very dark fifth Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Change of Heart. <laughs> I've travelled the world. I know what these people are like. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Italy, which you mentioned uh, had its own little uh, bout of democracy, a, a referendum um, which resulted in an overwhelming thwacking for the Prime Minister, uh, Matteo Renzi, who re- resigned and was replaced by caretaker Prime Minister Matteo Renzi, who then resigned again, as far as I can work. <laughs> it seemed to resign twice in three days. Um, there's some uncertainty over who's going to take over. I think it goes back to the beginning of the rotation now, because everyone in Italy has had a go. <laughs> um, and here, this uh, referendum. Now, uh, I think a lot of the problems with Brexit came from the wording of the question, which yeah. was quite vague. It basically just asked us a kind of loose opinion question. Should the United Kingdom remain a member of the European Union or leave the European Union, which is a kind of vague, half-assed question. Not, you know, we will leave the European Union. We will not. It's kind of a bit like asking, should Mike ask Trina out on a date? Should we be playing four four two, or should I wear this shirt with these trousers? A question which, in my experience, tends to lead to the answer no. Um, but in Italy, uh, they went the other way, and they managed to like a sixty-five percent turnout for a referendum. The question uh, of which was. Do you approve the text of the constitutional law on, quotes, provisions for exceeding the equal bicameralism, reducing the number of MPs, the containment of operating costs of the institutions, the suppression of the CNEL and the revision of Title V of Part Two of the Constitution, close quotes, approved by Parliament and published in the official Gazette number 88 of 15th of April 2016. <laughs> and 65% of Italians turned up to vote for that. That is a victory for democracy regardless of the result. Uh, Renzi was trying to introduce sweeping reforms to Italy's notoriously slow, cumbersome and costly government and uh, lost 59% of 41 Because, Nish, I think what happened here is that in this age of blurring national identities, of global consciousness and fracturing communities, Italy has to hold on to at least some of its defining features. You know, everyone eats pasta, everyone eats pizza now, a lot of countries play negative football, you know. <laughs> but nowhere has as notoriously slow, cumbersome and costly government as Italy. They cannot let that go. <laughs> this this was the people rising up saying, no, you cannot take it away from us. It was an incredibly complicated referendum and it seems like the Italians take the uh, same approach to their democracy as they do to their churches. Spectacularly flamboyant. <laughs> really, really flamboyant stuff uh, in the pulpit and the ballot box. And uh, the concern now is with Renzi stepping down, uh, it may lead to something that's been described in Italy as a period of uncertainty, which is not a great description <laughs> for a major European democracy. To be honest, in Italy, the period of uncertainty <laughs> began in about 410 yeah. AD, didn't it? When the Visigoths got a bit leery on a night out. <laughs> oh, there's nothing worse than a leery Visigoth. <laughs> Period of uncertainty is how I describe the 24 hours after I eat a suspect kebab. <laughs> it's not what you want. For, it's not what you want for any country, let alone Italy. Um, the Five Star Movement, which is sort of a that's a kind of more left wing populism. I find it, I mean, Italy, Italian politics is as baffling as any other any other nations, um, and it was basically founded on ending Italy's notoriously slow, cumbersome, and costly government. <laughs> and they were the main. Drivers behind defeating the referendum to do to do exactly that, and it essentially became a referendum on Renzi. He's been in uh, he's been uh, a king of Italy for two and a half years. Massive banking crisis, forty percent youth unemployment, sluggish economy. Frankly, he could have written anything on that ballot paper, and he would have <laughs> he could have asked people if they wanted free ice cream forever, and he would still have lost by at least ten points. That does seem to be the way that the Italians have simplified the whole thing down, is instead of this incredibly complicated question, 
it's essentially a piece of paper that says, do you like this man or not? <laughs> David Cameron was wise to sort of take remove himself largely, especially the weeks leading up to Brexit, to not turn this into a plebiscite, because if he had done that, I think it would have been 100%. <laughs> Go f*** yourself, Cameron. I mean, it does raise the question if Renzi is going to... Has the time come for the return of Silvio? I mean, one of the reasons Renzi is, has been unpopular is that he has simply not put his penis in enough things. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when you compare his popularity with Berlusconi's over many years, that, I mean, that's the only conclusion you can possibly draw. Two words. Bunga, bunga. <laughs> Renzi, you've made a huge mistake. Brexit news now, and, well, unless you just mentioned David Cameron. Uh, he, he has made his first kind of major public appearance this week since um, catapulting himself into the chasm of history. Um, he said, the rise of populism cost me my job. Um, no, David. It was you calling a snap referendum <laughs> on a hugely complicated issue without giving anyone the chance to really think about it properly or telling them what was actually going to happen if they did vote either way. Before, just because you got a bit bored of newspapers saying referendum, 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 and then campaigning for the side you claimed that you were heart and soul in favour of with the impassioned zeal and rock-solid conviction of a frozen chicken at a rally for the compulsorisation of badminton in school. <laughs> that is why you lost your job. It wasn't just populism. <laughs> it does seem like David Cameron is following uh, in a lot of his predecessor's path and just moving on to the lucrative American <laughs> lecturing circuit. Yeah, apparently Osborne's on 26 grand a gig now. Yeah. That, that, that's nearly your race. Or... Very close. <laughs> They're very, getting close to your corporate race now. <laughs> um, I do bar, bar mitzvahs as well. Um, so um, <laughs> the, the highlight of the whole Brexit uh, schmozzle this week, and we've had the you know, Supreme Court talking about it very seriously in a way that an issue like Brexit is not supposed to be talked about. It's supposed to be left to simple headlines and people shouting at radio phone-ins. And we have you know, 11 of the country's leading legal minds looking at it objectively, and we cannot cope with this in Britain. Um, Theresa May, luckily, has jumped into the breach with these wise words. People talk about the sort of Brexit there is going to be. Is it hard or soft? Is it grey or white? Um, based, I mean, is that based on the, the hair colour of the most influential voters in the decision? I don't know. It does sound like she's describing a meringue. <laughs> um, actually, she said, we want a red, white and blue Brexit. Uh, now... A, holy shit, Theresa, where the f*** did that come from? <laughs> B, who is telling you to say these things? And B, part two, why have you not either sacked them or locked them in a soundproof safe? I've got one spare if you need it. <laughs> and above all, C, congratulations on achieving the seemingly impossible. You have said something even more meaningless than Brexit means Brexit. <laughs> the linguistics expert said it could not be done. You looked them square in the face. You shoved a thesaurus in your mouth. You chewed it, swallowed it, and chundered it back up again whilst eyeballing them in the face. And you proved them wrong. Fair play, Teresa. I'm guessing she wants the kind of Brexit that would suit Panama or Paraguay. <laughs> Guadalupe. Gu Guadalupe. Guadalupe. Yeah. Well, it just shows what a global nation we're becoming. This we, is exactly we what want, Daniel Hanan has been saying. We want a Brexit that suits the French... The Russians, the Americans, <laughs> the Guadalupians, the Paraguayans, the Buffalo Bills NFL team. <laughs> it has to suit them. Any any others you want to throw into the mix? Dominican Republic? Yep. 
Wallace and Fortuna. Oh, last someone is, is right. thinking about what Brexit means I, for Wallace and Fortuna. I always, I mean, Fortuna always struggled. Faroe Re- replacing Gromit. Boom. <laughs> Crimea. <laughs> Crimea. That could be incendiary. Yeah, I mean, uh, if we're suggesting to me what's a Crimean Brexit, that does imply Vladimir Putin is about to <laughs> elect himself dictator of England. I. I, I I'm trying to think of this more charitably. I think what she means is that she wants a Brexit based on the influential 1990s film trilogy Three Colours, <laughs> directed by the Polish cinema legend Krzysztof Kieślowski, which, if you play them backwards, the red, white and blue uh, films, I can't remember which order they were in, uh, they contain coded messages about capping immigration to Britain at 43 people per year, how easy it is to make a trade deal with China in under an hour, and wanting to have cubic British apples again like they were before Brussels made them all round. I hope that you two are right. Because at the moment, if she's not referring to either Britain or any one of the other countries or film trilogies that have been (laughs) mentioned here, it does imply that we're going to emerge from Brexit bruised, covered in blood, and all white. (laughs) (laughs) I think think you might be the closest. (laughs) I mean, it's it's become an issue of... uh, an issue of patri- I mean, I bleed red, white, and blue, which is largely a dietary issue, and something I should probably have looked at by a hematologist. I, I think maybe it's that what she's referring to is the three phases of the post-Brexit face: <laughs> red being either embarrassment, guilt, or continued fury; white, blanching with worry about what we've just done; and then blue, the language used to describe. <laughs> well, but, but we weren't told there were options of. Colour schemes. No. <laughs> red, red, gold, and green. I'd have liked a Brexit based on the colour of Boy George's dreams <laughs> in the hit nineteen eighty three song Karma Chameleon. I'm assuming uh, black or brown is not one of the options <laughs> on, this, on this particular colour chart. <laughs> but it wasn't just Theresa May that was throwing this out there. The aforementioned Alexander van, van der Bellen, the new uh, incoming uh, president of Austria said that the Austrian flag will be a red-white-red signal of hope for Europe. So, um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> that's what I always think of when I look at the Austrian flag. <laughs> just screams hope. Last time I was here, we talked about the fact that uh, the Brexit vote was sort of enabled some of the kind of previously thought to be lunatic fringe of British politics to come into prominence. And in the intervening weeks, that has just got truer and truer and truer. Uh, And uh, a couple of weeks ago, Jacob Rees-Mogg was interviewed on Newsnight. Now, for people who's not from Britain or who may be unaware of who Jacob Rees-Mogg is, it's very difficult to describe him. (laughs) He is a sort of kind of affable but sim- sinister posh guy who turns up. He's basically like a prequel to Boris Johnson, essentially. <laughs> and it's hard to believe that he is a real person. It only really makes sense if 10 years' time... If in, It only really makes sense if in 10 years' time it turns out he's being played by Sasha Baron Cohen <laughs> the entire time and his entire career was a sort of Borat-like prank. But he weighed in because uh, there's been some findings recently for the Institute of Fiscal Studies that Brexit is going to mean that we're going to have sort of slower growth and it's going to directly impact people's wages. It's going to be a freeze in uh, people's wages over the next sort of couple of years. And uh, he then said that experts, soothsayers and astrologers are all in much the same category <laughs> and dismissed their opinion. By then, and I know you're a fan of the classics, Andy, he then waded in by quoting Cicero and he said, there's nothing so absurd that it hasn't been said by some philosopher. 
And I thought it was interesting that he was such a, he was dismissing that kind of reasoned based opinion. Uh, because if he's such a fan of Cicero, there's two other key quotes, I think, that he's missed out on here. <laughs> One is the wise are instructed by reason, average minds by experience, the stupid by necessity, and the brute by instinct. Right. And the other. Zing. And the other is. Do not listen to Jacob Rees-Mogg. That guy is a total arsehole. <laughs> Very wise man, Cicero. I think I had that in my GCSE Latin set <laughs> text. Uh, yeah, that was in my year seven copy of Eke Romani. <laughs> uh, Jacob, if, if you haven't seen, seen him, uh, Buglers, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, essentially, just imagine uh, the 1870s boiled down in some large saucepan and then sprinkled with some special aristocracy powder to create a human form. In 2016, you don't generally expect to encounter people who look like they could have colonised my ancestors. <laughs> and it is a concern because a lot of the findings seem to be suggesting that it's going to impact on the poorest people. And after all this talk that we're sort of taking back the country for ordinary British people, it just suggests that Brexit, at least in the short term, is not going to be great for uh, the poorest people in society. And I know this isn't the most important thing, but what did not help is that Nigel Farage recently had a banquet thrown for him <laughs> by a group of powerful millionaires at the Ritz Hotel. <laughs> and they were all drinking champagne and being served uh, tables of Ferrero Rocher, uh, which, again, for Bugler's not from England, is a chocolate that's associated with the ambassador's reception because of a 1980s advertising campaign. It was a jokey reference to Trump's suggestion that Farage become the UK's ambassador to, the, to America. Now, this is the thing... Far be it from me to lecture anyone on patriotism. But if Nigel Farage had a shred of loyalty to this country, he would not have held it at the Ritz, been drinking French drinks and eating Italian sweets. He would have held it in the car park of a travel lodge with a bunch of disgruntled football flans complaining about the recent appointment of Gareth Southgate while everyone drunk cans of special brew. And instead of Ferrero Rocher, they'd have all been eating Terry's chocolate orange and not in segments, they'd have been biting into it like an apple. That is what we fought two world wars for. God save the Queen. <laughs> I know I started that by explaining British references to American buglers and then ended it in an absolute hail of <laughs> very specific. Or you'll just have to trust me. That was a very good joke. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> and now, ladies and gentlemen, on this week's Bugle, it is time for... The, the Trumpets. Well, it's been a big week for Trump. He's been voted uh, Time Magazine's Person of the Year <laughs> for 2016. Um, now, we should emphasise this is not Time Magazine thinking this guy is the greatest thing, uh, greatest guy yeah, in the world. I mean, it's, not, it, it's not for being a, a top, top, top geezer. No, I mean, given that past recipients include Adolf Hitler, <laughs> you would hope that it isn't Time Magazine's ringing endorsement <laughs> of the year. Because I think they went straight from Hitler to Stalin, which is really... <laughs> I guess, you know, admiring certain character traits, but, you know, different wings of the political spectrum. It's really hedging your bets, isn't it? Um, uh, and Ro Roosevelt won it three times. I think, in fact, in consecutive years they had... Uh, oh, right. Uh, Roosevelt, Hitler, Stalin, Churchill. <laughs> that is really hedging your bets. Um, there have been some, some pretty vague ones uh, recently. Um, you, 2006, you uh, won the... Um, it was just awarded to you, not um, just meaning basically anyone who'd ever done anything online. 
<laughs> was person of the year. The American fighting man in 1950. Uh, American women in 1975. The computer in 1982. Um, the endangered earth in 1988. Uh, Enid the magic foal in uh, 2004. Uh, the letter Q. Um, people who like brunch and drunk men on trains. All previous winners of uh, person... Of the attract, it's not the first award Trump's won. Um, uh, not first, the first person of the year award he's won either. Um, also, uh, similar awards from other magazines, including uh, Today's <laughs> Knuckle International, <laughs> Opportunistic Chance Monthly, and Macrame for the Clinically Insane. Um, and he, he beat off uh, beat off competition for Ma- Man of the Year. Uh, for per- person, I say Man of the Year it was called Man of the Year up till 1999. That is <laughs> it objectively seems- too late. It does seem. <laughs> It does seem too late because that is 87 years after women were scientifically proved to exist and be the same species as men. So uh, it does seem we're in a new age of insult diplomacy with uh, Trump and everything else that's uh, happened to go, the sort of fury politics and grudge democracy that uh, seems to be informing the way people vote. And uh, therefore, Boris Johnson is the most appropriate foreign secretary we could have. Couldn't be a better uh, man for the time. For the insult age. Um... And uh, he was—he uh, got uh, told off by his boss, Theresa May, for um, accusing the Saudis and Iran of manipulating religion and conducting proxy wars. Now, this is a rare brush with something approaching the truth. <laughs> he said, there are politicians who are twisting and abusing religion and different strains of the same religion in order to further their own political objectives. Now, twisting and abusing, say, facts or economics is, of course, fine if you're Boris Johnson. <laughs> religion is beyond the pale. Um... The government has been accused by the shadow foreign secretary, Emily Thornberry, of shabby hypocrisy. And I, for one, think we need to get back to the proper, honest, above-board, straight-down-the-line, unashamed hypocrisy with which we traditionally conduct our business with Saudi Arabia. And um, uh, Prime Minister May had just returned from a visit where she'd had dinner with the leaders of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, the UAE, Qatar, Bahrain and Oman. But um, it was fine. She had her husband's permission, so they were (laughs) Well, she's been accused this week by Boris's supporters of uh, being part of an orchestrated campaign uh, to embarrass Boris Johnson, which is very unusual because normally he is very much the conductor of that orchestra and it very much takes care of his own embarrassments. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he, he, he's, not, it's not, he's not expressed himself ideally, but, uh, you know, a stopped clock or indeed a total <laughs> is right twice a day. <laughs> While we're briefly touching on the subject of contentious remarks about another nation, and also on Twitter, Newt Gingrich, who is, by my understanding, a full asshole, <laughs> uh, took to Twitter this week uh, to really celebrate, in quite a strange way, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Uh, he tweeted uh, this 75 years ago. The Japanese displayed professional brilliance and technological power launching surprises from Hawaii to the Philippines. Now that is not what I was expecting from Newt Gingrich. I did not expect Newt Gingrich to take Pearl Harbor as an opportunity to praise the Japanese soldiers. <laughs> yeah, that is left field. It's, I mean, that is, that is left of the left field. Right. That is a very strange turn of events. And you're trying to imagine a world in which if, say, a Democrat had decided to take 
the opportunity of the anniversary of Pearl Harbor to praise the Japanese army for skillfully blowing up a load of <laughs> Americans. I suspect if he wasn't at the front, he would certainly be in the front third of the line to call those people out on that. It was a very strange move from Newt Gingrich. Did he follow it up by saying so like about Stalin, he got the trains to run on time? <laughs> I've heard that Newt Gingrich is angling for a position uh, in Trump's government. Maybe he thought this was the way to get the ambassador to Japan job. <laughs> Your emails now, and uh, this one comes in from someone known only as Rotation North, uh, who writes, uh, There's been a lot said about American elections recently, but there is one important question that has yet to be answered, so I turn to the paragon of virtue that is the bugle. Can you still donate to Rudy Giuliani's 2008 presidential campaign? <laughs> and I... I, I well, I, I think you can't anymore, but it does seem like he could well be in the front line of Trump's administration. So you could just send him a, you know, some loose change to, to, uh, to, uh, to Washington. What happened to all that money? Because um, presumably people were still donating after 2008. I can't imagine well, we, that. Yeah, we tracked him, and it was, still, it was still up for at least three years afterwards, <laughs> possibly even through the 2012 campaign. Um, I mean, I, th- I still, you know, in, in hindsight... It would have been good had more people donated if he'd won that election in 2008. I don't believe Trump would have won in 2016. Is that possibly because America would have ceased to exist in 2009? Well, possibly. I don't, you know, I would take that at, at this juncture. <laughs> <laughs> well, the door's not shut to Giuliani now because Trump's really opened the door. For, I mean, Giuliani has some political experience. Trump has no political experience, doesn't seem to know anything. Trump has opened the door for anyone. Rudy Giuliani, Mickey Mouse... Donald Sutherland, just anyone <laughs> at this point. Donald Sutherland would be... Uh, He's, he'd be a great president. Yeah. He'd probably get Kiefer in to do a job for him as well on national security. <laughs> Who knows? If you can get him back off the... Who, who kidnapped? Was it the Chinese or the Russians? I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember how Series 8 finished. <laughs> <laughs> and this came from Brian in Houston, Texas. It says, Dear Andy, Chris Nish, and the metaphysical remains of John Oliver that linger in the airways. <laughs> Breathe it in. Um, <laughs> what do you each want for Christmas this year? Uh, ask, uh, as for me, I'm asking for Santa for a mini Mussolini's fascist startup kit. Because once again, all the other kids in the world are ahead of me when it comes to today's trendiest toy. Nish, I mean, what are you? Uh, are you are you a big Christmas fan? Oh, I'm a big fan of the festival I refer to as Honky Diwali. <laughs> <laughs> big fan of the old HD. All right. Yeah. Uh, well, this year for Christmas, I'm hoping for one thing and one thing only, and that is the ability to become white. <laughs> I'm just hoping that if I could somehow get a sort of X-Men superpower to remove all the melanin from my skin, <laughs> I might stand a better chance of making it through 2017. <laughs> we will have... Uh, I'm not going to answer that question because we will, in two weeks' time, we have a full Christmas special. We'll be unveiling all the must-have Christmas gifts for you. I'll be doing that with my sister, Helen. Uh, next week on The Bugle, uh, we have Anuvab Pal reporting in from India again as our uh, rest of the world correspondents. Uh, we will leave this week's Bugle. If you want to uh, keep sending your emails in, uh, the address is hellobuglers at thebuglepodcast.com. Don't forget to buy yourself and all your friends and relatives tickets to uh, my uh, Christmas stroke New Year show 
at Soho Theatre from the 20th of December to the 7th of January with a few breaks for things like days when absolutely no one will turn up <laughs> rather than just most people won't turn up. Um, and my UK tour starts uh, in February. Uh, do check out the internet for that. Um, <laughs> Nish, anything to plug? I mean, you've got to be ruthlessly self-promotional to stay on this show. Yeah, yeah, you got, I've really got it. Uh, I've, uh, I've, I've still got some loose tour dates. Uh, my tour is almost over, but there's some dates uh, in uh, January uh, the 30th and the 31st and the 1st. Uh, that is a Scottish run. So that's Glasgow, Edinburgh and Aberdeen, uh, respe- respectively. And then there's some other dates as well, but I can't really... Uh, can't uh, find them. You're fitting right in. Nishkumar.co.uk. I want to say .co.uk, but it might be .com. Just Google Nishkumar tour. Nishkumar, a graduate of the exclusive Andy Zaltzman University course of public relations. I think I've spent too much, too many, I've spent too many hours listening to this fucking podcast. To have any sense of how to self-promote. Thanks for listening, Buglers. We will be back next week. And uh, Nish will be back in January. Uh, Until then, goodbye. Bye. Hi, it's producer Chris from The Bugle here. Did you know that I have a new series of my podcast, Richie Firth Travel Hacker, out now? It's the show where Richie Firth and I talk about how to make travel better in our very special way. In this series, we discuss line bikes, Teslas, the London Overground, and a whole bunch of other random stuff that possibly involves wheels or tracks or engines of some variety. God, what a hot sell this is. I mean, you, you, you must be so excited. Listen now.